the body and the mind or heart can seem unfathomable. And in that way, we can see the practice as a journey into the wilderness of the mind, heart, body. John Hay is a great naturalist from um, this century, last century, that we're very lucky to be on the planet with. And he wrote in the Company of Light, do not call it wilderness unless you are prepared to be lost and discovered there. And I would say the same thing about a retreat. You know, do not really call it a retreat unless you're prepared to be lost and discovered there many, many times, over and over and over. And I find that sometimes at the beginning of a walking or the beginning of a sitting or actually any time when I feel lost or disconnected, especially on a retreat, it can be helpful to be aware of our own helplessness in the face of feeling that lost. It's like we lose touch with our intention. We lose touch with the meaning of why we're here. And it's true that we all take our own unique path to the truth. So we all want so much to land on the earth and be safe here. The Buddha said that a guarded mind brings happiness. That's safety. But there are times when mindfulness isn't present. That's the guarded mind. And we don't feel safe. The talk tonight is about the four guardian meditations, or the four reflections, which are helpful to bring into our practice when we feel lost, when we feel disconnected from our intention or meaning. Just before the Buddha died, he said, be your own refuge, be your own light. And hopefully that's one reason why we're here. We create an outer sanctuary at a retreat. We create the conditions of refuge or sanctuary so we can create refuge inside. And the practice is one of perfecting that refuge and perfecting that refuge for others. The more we're a refuge for ourselves, the more we are a refuge for others. So when we contemplate protection or safety, it's really important to understand what the Buddha meant by that a guarded mind brings safety or happiness, it really means that mindfulness protects us from being identified with our desires or, or attachments. Mindfulness protects us from being identified with our fear or aversion. And it protects us from the suffering of being lost in delusion. Mindfulness is a non-judgmental attention, so it's this ultimate light, ultimate refuge that helps lead us to insight and to the truth that's inside.
When we start a sitting, you know, we usually give the instruction to bring the attention to the body, to receive whatever sensations are happening there, to become aware of them, and then to receive the sounds, to receive the breath as a kind of anchor, to be still enough to see clearly. And when we can't, when we have that sense of (laughs) kind of fuzzy um, resistance or disconnection, this is the time to maybe do one of the four reflections, or all four. And I just want to mention again, you know, these might not be so appropriate to do when we feel complete, when we feel like the mindfulness is there. Because at that time, we don't need anything more. There is that sense of, you know, that perfection of just flowing with the present moment experience. But when that's not happening, the Four Guardian Meditations, or one of them, can help us tune into our deeper motivation or inspiration. So the first Guardian Meditation is reflecting on one or many of the qualities of the Buddha, the virtues of the Buddha, that can be inspiring for us. It can inspire faith and confidence, or just bring some energy or light. The second guardian meditation is loving-kindness, or metta. Loving-kindness is love that has wisdom in it, or understanding in it. And most important in this way of metta being a guardian meditation, the presence of loving-kindness can help us to not use the practice against ourselves. So I'll go into many other reasons why the loving-kindness can be a helpful guardian meditation, but that's one of the main ones. And the third guardian meditation is reflecting on the 32 parts of the body. And this is a reflection on um, the reality of the body behind the appearance of the body, meaning that we often see our body like we would if we were looking in the mirror or a photo but we forget about what's going on inside that might not be quite as beautiful as what we think it is. And that's an antidote to craving. And the fourth guardian meditation is a reflection on the inevitability of death. And this is sometimes really helpful to cut through a kind of arrogance of complacency that somehow we forget that anything can happen. Uh, And it also can strengthen our sense of spiritual urgency. So you can see how if we're feeling a bit helpless or lost or confused, how these four guardian meditations can at the least, you know, help us find some lifeline in terms of continuing on, just to take another breath, to take another step. The Four Guardian Meditations are meant to help us stay in touch with our deepest wishes for ourselves and others.
Traditionally, that first guardian meditation, reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha, um, in some ways, it's, it's meant to be so inspiring. But I think we have to be careful in the West of not comparing ourselves with the Buddha. You know, this isn't meant to kind of go through all the paramis of the, you know, the perfections of generosity, of loving kindness, of resolution, of compassion, of wisdom, on and on and on. If we start thinking, well, we're not measuring up by this comparison, it can lead <laughs> to the opposite. Uh, it won't feel like a protection. You know, we'll feel like we're failing miserably. You know, so that's not the idea. And if, it, if this recollection doesn't bring the sense of inspiration, it's not helpful for us, that that's okay. There might be some other image um, that might be more helpful for us. But if we do have a connection with the, the qualities of the Buddha that have inspired you know, these teachings, just if you imagine lifetimes of perfecting one quality, like compassion, you know, it's humbling because we tend to be in such a hurry to be free, or we tend to be in such a hurry, you know, to get get it all at once. But really, if you look at the meaning of you know this perfecting qualities over eons, it can help us just kind of, <laughs> oh yeah, take a breath, not to be so hard on ourselves. So in the text, the Buddha is described as sublime, the knower of worlds, an incomparable leader, a teacher of gods and goddesses, as well as humans. And when we reflect on the qualities of the Buddha um, that inspire us, it's said that the mind tends to turn toward the place of the Buddha's. That's the idea. Uh, So at the least, it can bring about some happiness and gladness or courage, calm, lightness. When I first went to Burma, I was very touched by the immediacy with which people relate to the Buddha. It's like he didn't die, you know, or he just walked by yesterday. Uh, And some people might think of it as um, not so sophisticated, but it was really moving to see some places where, when it's cold, they put a sweater on the Buddha statue. Or in some places, they actually brush the Buddha's teeth. You know, it's he's alive. It's, 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 it's not like he was there 2,500 years ago. He's sitting there with you. He's sitting in that um, room where you're walking. Or he's walking with you. He's laying there when you're sleeping. It's like that, that immediately helps us to remember that it's really the Buddha inside. This relationship we're cultivating maybe in a, in a way that's outside of us, is really meant to come back home to that these are qualities in us that we might lose touch with, but hopefully discover and strengthen on a retreat. There is a um, Sayadaw in Sagain in Burma where we've been teaching that 
is very quiet and um, more hidden. And to me, he exemplifies um, in the four heavenly messengers that the Buddha taught, the fourth heavenly messenger being a renunciate, uh, that being what inspired the Bodhisattva to be, uh, to become the Buddha in this lifetime. And there's a way in which he's so humble, um, so utterly humble, and I'm moved by that. It's like I know that that's what the Buddha meant when he talked about renunciation. And when I first met him and talked with him and asked him about his practice, for years he did these four reflections. And we might think of them as some kind of lesser practice that we might do when we're stumbling. Uh, But he did these for years. He did this reflecting on the Buddha's qualities for some years, metta for some years, 32 parts of the body for some years. So if you're having a hard time and you do a minute or two of these practices, you know, you're not, you know, falling behind. (laughs) It's not like you're just doing some remedial work before you get to the real work. Uh, So be careful of judging these protecting um, guardian meditations as something that you insert um, just when it's difficult, and they're not the real practice. When I see this monk, I can't imagine not bowing down to him. I mean, it's unthinkable. That's how powerful his humility and renunciation is. For some of us, the the image of the Buddha as a statue might not be so inspiring, and that's okay. You know, that's in the West, if you don't grow up with this, it's, it could be something that just doesn't connect, and there could be a way in which um, a guardian spirit would be more helpful. Or Rumi, you know, something. Mary, you know, there's, there, there can be other um, images of the divine that can help us, but it, what matters is that we make the connection and feel protected, guarded, After the Buddha died, he wasn't remembered as a statue. He was remembered as an emptiness. So for about 500 years, there was no image created in his likeness. And this is very important for us to remember that he would be represented over those 500 years as an empty seat or a tree with no one underneath it or a pair of footprints or the wheel of Dhamma set turning. So again, if these images are more helpful, a tree with no one underneath it for 500 years, that's what was represented as the Buddha. You know, that's a wonderful thing to contemplate. So he was referred to as one thus gone. And it wasn't until the Greek settlers in India came and converted to Buddhism that he was personified as the statue we see today, as the god Apollo.
I would like to mention in relationship to this first guardian meditation that uh, there's a word for bowing in Pali called Anjali. Uh, and it's like any time you bring your hands together in a gesture of reverence, that's Anjali. Uh, but sometimes you'll see people bowing, or you might bow. Uh, that's an aspect of Anjali. And in its full meaning, it's not just a gesture of reference, but when we actually move our whole body, heart, mind, it's meaning that we're making a whole, a complete offering of ourselves to the truth, to the Dhamma. It's like when we bow over, um, we're offering our body, mind, heart to the truth. Traditionally, one bows to the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. For me, when I bow, you know, because I've bowed in so many different mind states, you know, it's like I don't think (laughs) there's a new mind state that I haven't bowed in, but especially when things have been difficult for me, to bow and to touch my forehead on the earth, you know, there's just this feeling of surrender uh, that is the practice in and of itself. You surrender to whatever's happening in your practice, in your life, at that moment. And it's very, not only is it healing, but it's very liberating. A retreat is an offering of your body, mind, and heart to the Dhamma. Sometimes when I'm doing loving-kindness practice and I can't connect with it, you know, sometimes it's helpful for me to just place the Buddha next to me or in front of me. You know, so I would really encourage you to do that in whatever way, again, that you would find it helpful because it can be really um, uplifting. One of the great disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta, uh, described the four floods that us human beings are up against in this journey to liberation. The flood of sensuality, the flood of the will to be, the flood of views, and the flood of ignorance. And he said that the Buddha is the one who teaches us how to cross over these floods. He said, The Buddha showed a way for the crossing over these floods, and we who have been shown this ambrosia of deathlessness stand unshakable, seeing dharma. It's so beautiful. You know, this is what we're meant to contemplate, this ambrosia of deathlessness, where we can stand unshakable, seeing the truth the Dhamma. The next guardian meditation is uh, the practice of loving-kindness. This could be five seconds at the beginning of a sitting or walking, or it could be 10 or 15 minutes of loving-kindness, or a whole sitting or walking. You know, it just depends on how we connect and how it it might be helpful for us. Mindfulness 
is the intention to understand our experience rather than to judge it. So if we're in a merciless judging place of ourselves or others, you can see how loving-kindness is really a way to soften the heart so that we can be mindful. I'd like to read part of a poem from Mary Oliver about dolphins. A hundred white-sided dolphins on a summer day, each one, as God himself, could not appear more acceptable. A hundred times, in a body blue and black threading through the sea foam, and lifting himself up from the open tents of the waves on his fishtail, to look with the moon of his eye into my heart and find there pure, sudden, steep, sharp, painful gratitude that falls, I don't know, either unbearable tons or the pale, bearable hand of salvation on my neck lifting me from the boat's plain plank seat into the world's unspeakable kindness. So imagine starting a sitting, touching into that unspeakable kindness. You know, that kind of gentle blessing or touch that would enable us to soften into the truth of how things are. You know, this is the loving kindness. It's, a, it's being able to bring a blessing to ourselves and others. And of course, at the beginning of a retreat, there tends to be a little more resistance going on. Maybe not that soft, sensitive, delicate touch of awareness with whatever's appearing. You know, we can tend to be more clubbing things than gentle, yeah? So if you find that you're going thinking, you know, or you're just getting tighter and tighter around a mind state or pain, you know, you're probably (laughs) experiencing, maybe not quite yet, but, you know, the intensity of the physical pain that comes up, sometimes it helps to soften with some kindness. Because that allows the awareness to become kind again. Mindfulness is the intention to understand rather than to judge. And you'll notice when the resistance is there to, say, physical pain, that even if the words aren't there, we are judging that experience as not being acceptable. So the loving-kindness softens resistance to how things are. And then it can um, really allow us to accept more deeply our humanness, our limits, and actually help us to forgive ourselves or others for not being perfect. The loving-kindness brings a kind of composure uh, so that we can act from our deepest center and also uh, find that relaxed effort in practice. 
loving kindness is also a kind of purification so that we can um, see the judgment more clearly. We can see our self-centeredness more clearly, our neediness or our loneliness, uh, the wanting mind. Um, We can feel safe and protected with the kindness and the um, gentleness. So we're not so afraid of those experiences, and they can come and go by themselves without having to do something with them. You know how we tend to want to do something with loneliness or do something with neediness, rather than just let it be with kindness. Loving kindness also protects us because we can um, develop some concentration or tranquility. That is also the protection of seclusion. Being with the breath is a protection of seclusion until we open up to our moment-to-moment experience. And also the loving-kindness brings about a seclusion. If you connect with it and you can um, do this practice for five or ten minutes at the beginning of a sitting, it can help deepen our concentration. And then we shift to our moment-to-moment experience. And if we're having any difficulty with our um, fellow sufferers on the retreat, our fellow yogis, uh, loving kindness is meant to spill over from ourselves to others, you know, so that we connect with the suffering in ourselves and are kind towards it. We also, um, it can soften us towards all the people in this room, all the people on the planet. So you might connect with reflecting on the uh, virtues of the Buddha. You might connect with uh, this unspeakable kindness of metta. And then the third guardian meditation is reflecting on the 32 parts of the body. And as I mentioned, there's a way in which we see ourselves visually that's so powerful And, you know, we might look in the mirror and not like how our hair is that day, or we might see a freckle we don't like, or, you know, whatever it is. But um, this is a little deeper than the surface, (laughs) like under the skin. You know, so it's reflecting on organs, head, hair, blood, pus, bones, nails, teeth, body parts, fluids. If you hate your body, this is probably not a good reflection. (laughs) But if you're more of a type that, you know, is lustful, you know, is um, really sensual and gets attached a lot to others or oneself in a sensual way, it can help break the spell of, you know, how things are appearing. I had a student at a three-month retreat that had been interested in this practice for some years, but the 32 parts seemed a bit much, so we focused on five. For three months, he just reflected on blood, pus, hair, bones, and skin. 
and it was amazing to see how light his mind got and concentrated um, and how powerful it was for his practice. It was like the right one for him at the right time. My uh, dad died in June, and I spent um, quite a few (laughs) weeks in the hospital with him before he died. And he had some wounds on his legs that has, have never been diagnosed, but um, I could see through this, you know, it's like they, they were so horrible that you could see his tendons and ligaments. And it was so utterly painful um, to see his body from that perspective. Uh, I don't know if I've quite processed it yet or really absorbed it fully. But I just was amazed at how when I look at a leg, I don't, I don't normally think of what's inside it and how it looks, you know. And again, it's, this is not meant to be a morbid reflection, but it is meant to cut through this incredible conditioning we have around visuals. You know, we just, we just forget to have the direct experience of the inside. You know, so what I would recommend with this particular reflection, um, especially when you feel attached or aversive to someone, it can be helpful to reflect, you know, what part of their body am I attached to? You know, or what part of their mind am I attached to or aversive to? Or what memory am I attached to or aversive to? Uh, because it's really interesting how identified we can get or attached to ourselves and others when really it might be just <laughs> their face, you know, but not the back of their head, you know, or and you might not like their waist, but you like their feet. Or, you know, it's, it's just sort of, um, it can be liberating to investigate just what it is that we're identified with with ourselves or others. Even though we can do a lot of practice, it's really um, powerful, this identification with the body as being me or I or you. And this kind of leads into the uh, fourth guardian meditation, which is reflecting on the inevitability of death. And I'd like to read from... um, Titnat Han's translation of this, he calls them the five remembrances. And these, these again, are something that we can bring in, say we're feeling um, a lack of spiritual urgency, or we're feeling really disconnected from dukkha, you know, that, that we're just sort of dulled in and aren't so motivated. Um, The first remembrance is, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. The second is, I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. 
I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And the last one is, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. So I wanted to just focus in on the two aspects of this reflection that I think are really helpful, which is one, just um, helping us to see our complacency or or the arrogance of thinking that, you know, death isn't going to happen to me. Um, And the other, which is just spiritual urgency. Uh, If you're here at this retreat, you've had to touch into some spiritual urgency. And it's wonderful. And even if you use this reflection for that, that you um, recognize and value the spiritual urgency that you do have, that's a really beautiful um, quality that brings us to a retreat. The Dalai Lama said that without the awareness of death, it impedes all spiritual practices. That's that's powerful, that all spiritual practices are impeded if we don't have this awareness of the inevitability of death. I have had... um, so many people that I've been close to die in the last year and a half that I wasn't sure how to talk about this tonight because um, it's so much it's funny. You know, it's like, well, I guess this is the teaching that I'm meant to be really looking at um, right now. It's kind of unavoidable. And there's been a poem by um, Basho who was a, a Japanese haiku master, but also his spiritual practice was that of pilgrimage, very difficult, um, long pilgrimages through sometimes really difficult uh, terrain in Japan. And I think that this haiku is one of the most beautiful descriptions of um, how we're all interconnected in relationship to mortality. You know, that, that we all, every bird, you know, chipmunk, uh, snake, uh, human being, deva, god or goddess, that, that anything that conditioned, anything that takes birth will pass away. Uh, and also the karma of that. I think that that, for me, the last year and a half, what I've been learning is is not even so much that we all pass away as well as take birth, but what is it? What is this strength of karma that brings us together with certain people? And how much we are meant to learn from that, from each other. Uh, so Basho said about this inevitability of death, 
Departing spring, birds crying, tears in the eyes of fish. Departing spring, birds crying, tears in the eyes of fish. You know, it's like when we cry, even the fish are crying with us. It's, it's so beautiful, it's so deep. Um, I know for myself that uh, mortality has, has been something that it's like one of my deepest spiritual practices. When I was, a, I was very young, I would make altars in the woods for any animal that I found that um, had died. It was so important to me. Um, and my mother died when I was young. So uh, I was sort of forced to look at mortality in a way that most of my friends hadn't had to. Um, And from this perspective, um, at my age now, I am so grateful to my mother for that teaching. It's like she gave me this sense of spiritual urgency. Um, I don't know the karma of it in terms of her intention, but the result or the consequence of it is that I have been so motivated to try to understand what's deeper than life and death. You know, this is the ambrosia of the deathlessness that the Buddha taught. And it's really when we're yearning even to drop below this endless chatter in our mind, when we sense that there's a silence deeper than the kind of constant stream of, um, (laughs) you know, it's just that, Uh, We want security, we want security, we want security, we want security. But when we do have enough yearning and longing, uh, there's this really deep ache inside of us for something deeper. That's spiritual urgency. And anything that you've done in your life that brings you deeper, you know, that helps cut through the kind of mainstream, you know, really being identified with the body, really being identified with whatever. But you can look at our culture and see that it's so hard to value spirituality. It's so hard to value this yearning for something deeper. You know, so that I find that the, the um, reflection on the inevitability of death to be a very joyous um, reflection. It's not something that is meant to bring us down as much to really um, give us energy to look more closely at what's really true. Because there is something deeper. And we all know it, or we wouldn't be here in this room. The Four Guardian Meditations, in the reflection on the Buddha's qualities, uh, the unspeakable kindness of metta, the 32 parts of the body, and the uh, reflection on the inevitability of death are meant to actually protect the teachings. 
they protect the preciousness of the practice itself. And they help us to become a refuge. The Buddha was a perfect refuge for himself and others. And we can aspire to that, to become a refuge in this world, a light for ourselves and others. So especially when you might be having some difficulty, or maybe not at the beginning of a sitting or walking, you might find one or several of these guardian meditations helpful. So I'd like to end with a uh, quotation from the Buddha. Blessed are friends when need arises, Blessed is contentment with just what one has. Blessed is merit when life is at an end. And blessed is the abandonment of all suffering. Let's sit for a minute. May all beings feel safe and protected from inner and outer harm. 